Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to a special episode of the BOF podcast. This week, we premiered the first episode of the BOF show, a new immersive video series streaming on Bloomberg Quick Take, a project our team has been working on for the past six months. Filmed between London and Paris this summer, the BOF show captures an extraordinary time for fashion as this $2.5 trillion industry reawakens after global lockdowns. The first season of six episodes explores a central question on the minds of business and creative leaders, how to balance profit with profit. 
purpose. In the first episode, I traveled to Paris to find the designers Demnek Vassalia of Balenciaga and Marine Serre, hoping the world has woken up to the need for change. I spent almost 60 minutes talking with Demna about his vision for Balenciaga Couture the day before the legendary house staged its 50th Couture show. Our conversation was truly revelatory, but not all of it could make it into the episode. So today we are sharing my full conversation with Demna exclusively for BOF podcast listeners. Don't forget to check out the full episode streaming now on Bloomberg Quick Take and businessoffashion.com. Now, here's my interview with Demnik Vesalia from episode one of the BOF show. So I wanted to start with where we are right now. Can you tell me what this place signifies to the house of Balenciaga? Um, I would say this is like probably to me, it's almost similar to what Vatican is to Catholic Church. <laughs> so I would say it's the historic address. This actual space salon where we're sitting is where um, the couture clients would come back then during the, 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 the Cristobal Balenciaga era. And it's really the, the address of the house that we haven't been using in this way uh, since it was closed. I mean, luckily <laughs> the, the, the house kept it, for other uh, reasons, it actually became a storage. If really? I have, yeah, it, it, when I first came here, it didn't look anything like that. It was very different. There was no um, stucco. All this is uh, something that we replicated. It was a storage for shoes and bags from the Avenue Montaigne store. So we would run here and get boxes. And originally, it was the salon. It was the salon. This is the place where uh, the founder of this house would come and 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 create his legacy. That we, you know. With, that we're living through, living today. So it's a very, very significant and symbolic address. It's a small place. Like you also see the scale, how fashion has exploded in the last 53 years since he closed it. Um, but it's a sacred place for Balenciaga. And I felt that couture was a good argument for me to, to invest into it and to really give back to, to Balenciaga its historic address. You know, all the other houses here in Paris, they have it. And I felt that Balenciaga, time has come for it to, to get that address back. This has been a long time coming. The original launch was supposed to be a year ago. Yeah, exactly. Right? How has the last year been for you personally? Well, it was awful, like for everyone, I think, to, to be isolated and not to, you know, not to see people, not to be able to communicate with my teams. Doing fashion on the screen is a really challenging, <laughs> A challenging experience, which we learn to deal with. You know, we I mean, we get used to things, and we try our ways around, find our ways around it. Um, but I think, on the personal level, it was a very well. There was a silver lining for me in this pandemic. I really could take the time to reconnect to myself, to to go inwards. You know, to really um, find things in me that I, I haven't been noticing before because I just had no time for that, you know? And I think being at home and having time to think really was a very uh, good thing for me in my personal growth, I would say, you know? It's not only about meditation or walking in the forest, it's also like questioning things, what really matters in life, what are the values that I really, you know, cherish today, and uh, this one year did this. and. Um, you know, health, love, and family, and my home took kind of a first row seat in my life. 
because of that or thanks to that. Um, and in the couture context, it actually, I'm happy that I had this time. I'm happy that I could reflect and in, really have the luxury of having the time to build my vision around this because it's a very important moment, not only for Balenciaga, but for myself as a designer um, to come out, come out there with this project. And uh, I had uh, extra, extra three or four months actually <laughs> to work on it thanks to the situation. So, so um, in a way it helped me to, to perfect or to polish my vision for Balenciaga Couture in a way that I couldn't have done without it. What is your vision for Balenciaga Couture? Couture. Well, my vision for Balenciaga Couture is pretty much in looking or in searching for the essence of what fashion is, which is not a sneaker or a t-shirt with a logo or a knit bag in any size available, but it is the, the, the dressmaking, you know, in its core and what it does almost psychologically to the person who wears it. For me, couture is so different from ready-to-wear because it's an experiential fashion. It's nothing you can look at and appreciate it fully because it's only when you put it on, it does something. It triggers in you confidence. So, something, something special happens with couture because you feel that, that the work, the, the love, the, the passion that was put into making those pieces, that's why they also cost so much money because you need all that for it to be couture. Mm -hmm. And um, my I would say, rather than my vision, my mission in couture is to actually give it a second life, in a way, because it's something, it's a notion that we've been, you know, everybody, I heard people saying couture is dead, who needs it, you know, it's completely useless. And, but it is the essence of what we do, of this industry in a way, but it's, it's kind of a slippery slope because if we don't talk about it, if we don't really put it in the spotlight what, where the fashion in itself comes from, I'm afraid of what's going to be in 20, 30 years. What about this generation of people who actually think that Balenciaga started with the triple S? Yeah. That's not, you know what I mean? That's for me, the mission is very formative as well. But on the other hand, as a designer, it's like, it's a sheer luxury to be able to have one year of time to work on a collection. I mean, that's what I have also, I mean, I have three months usually to work on a collection. So it's four times that, means four times more fittings in which I can keep changing the sleeve head of the jacket, mm -hmm. adding interlinings. For me, couture is an effort for perfection, but it still never gets there. I think perfection is kind of, doesn't really exist so but I like how far you can go with couture into looking for that mm. you know perfect sleeve or a perfect shoulder when you're thinking about the customer mm. for this you know they say that there's only 200 women in the world or a thousand women in the world less. <laughs> yeah they say there's very few people in the world mm. who buy couture mm -hmm. and as you said the triple s has become kind of the signature product mm of Balenciaga drives. Fortunately. Yeah. That's why I can do couture actually. Exactly. The sneakers <laughs> enable kind of, you to Well, do not only sneakers, I think yeah. the ready to wear in general. Yeah. He closed the doors of the salon because of the birth of uh, Pret-a-Porter because he couldn't relate to that. And I feel like somehow the loop is closed now because we can go back to that essence of what Balenciaga is and fashion, which is that like highest level of, of dressmaking and thanks to the commercial success of ready to wear. So it's kind of 
ironic in a way. Even. But the person who buys the triple S or, you know, well, they don't wear couture today, yeah. I guess. So who who is the customer? Well, I think there are two types of customers that I would like to to, to start a dialogue with because today there is no context of Balenciaga couture at all. So we're kind of free in thinking like who can be our audience. I think it would have been a bit boring and maybe not very forward-looking for me to only focus on those 300 people and out of those maybe 10 who would actually buy couture from Balenciaga, which is the case. We have somebody who comes with a carnet d'adresse with actual couture clients in a classic understanding of what couture client is, who buy it in the few couture houses that still do this. And for me, this is kind of quintessential in this project. I need to have a relation with those people and I need to offer them and hopefully create desire in them to wear what I do. But on the other hand, there is another type of client that is a bit different. And that's the type of client that gives me hope in maybe potentially modernizing the notion of couture. It's a client who doesn't have to wear only couture, who can wear the triple S or the eat back of whatever, whatever brand, or, but they could still be able to buy one unique piece that will make them feel so special. And I think, by having that one first couture piece, it kind of does it on itself. Like I, don't, I cannot even explain this to you. This is why I said it's an experience. So once you put that couture ja denim jacket, you will feel the difference between the couture and ready to wear. It's the way it, you know, the way it makes your posture. It's, it's like a sculpture, you know, not in terms of weight, but in terms of what it does to you, to your body, and to your psyche as well. So. So my idea is to create a conversation with both types of clients in there. It could be people who spend a lot of money in our ready-to-wear lines and they buy not only sneakers, also fashion items, you know, or more commercial stuff or going, you know, even until the t-shirt. But the same people, you know, might just say, well, maybe I don't buy 20 sneakers a year and 50 t-shirts and a trench coat like this and like that, but I, I keep that money to buy something unique that will make me also stand out, because I think we're entering the era of individualism okay. rather than... The other day when we came to see you at the lookbook shoot, mm -hmm. you know, there were boys there and girls there. There was this whole play with gender. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were girls wearing tailoring, there were boys wearing dresses. So gender... And high heels. And high heels. And having eyeliner. And eyeliner. And this, <laughs> You know, we're, we're in a moment in culture right now where this idea of the gender binary is being questioned. And I, f I, feel, I feel like we're in a shift. In fact, I don't know if you saw, uh, there's an article in the New York Times about how post-pandemic, there's men in the streets of New York wearing dresses. Thanks God. Well, yeah. You see, the pandemic brought a lot of goodness too. I mean, with so why thank God? Like, why is that so important to this vision of what modern couture can be? Well, because we are still kind of fashion lives in those boxes that have been made 50, 60, 70 years or maybe hundreds of years ago. You know, men, why is couture only for women? I got so frustrated at the beginning, so I had to go to archives and I had to look at Cristobal's work and obviously it was only women. I, we only had a few pieces of him that he made for himself as a reference for menswear. And I felt that if I want to do couture now in 2021, I, I have to erase the idea of gender in it. There is, it just makes no sense to me, you know, to say, okay, this is for women, this is for men. I just make clothes and then, you know, whoever wants to wear it, they wear it. Um, I feel like talking about gender is like talking about sustainability. It's almost like the day before yesterday's news, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about it. We should just be living it in fashion. Right. And for me, 
the fact that you saw boys and girls and non-binary people in my cast, and also the way we play with coats, like I said, guys wearing heels. You know, I did that because I wanted to, first of all, I want giving couture to men, for example, for me they had to pay back somehow, so I wanted them to wear heels and to feel how it is to wear heels and to see what it does to a different type of guys, for example, there are some guys who are more comfortable wearing heels and they like they walk very well in them better some some of the girls in my cast actually and then you have this more like kind of a heterosexual type of you know guys in my cast that they walk even more manly in those heels to underline that kind of virilité in french like the virility you know to show like i'm actually a guy but i'm still so there is this, there is something psychological happening once a man puts on a high heel and it's not about like, you know, it's not, a, it's not a drag at all. It's really an experiment that I wanted to do. Well, I tried to wear it myself during the pandemic. because I had, wore heels. <laughs> for two days, I almost broke my ankles. But it was because I always hear girls in my team and women saying, well, the heels, you know, like, what do we do with that? And I wanted to, I think we need to experience things to really understand them. And, well, they were not as good, the heels I wore, as the ones we made. But um, it gave me an insight into what it feels like. And What did you learn? I learned that sometimes to have a certain attitude and posture and to feel, to feel fabulous, if you can say so, we do suffer through fashion and it's okay too. So it's kind of putting it on a scale of, is it worth it? To me, those two hours, they were worth it because I felt kind of like a different, amazing person, you know, <laughs> like having that attitude that I never would have had otherwise. And it's only 10 centimeters of something under my heel that made that difference. And, it's a little bit what couture does, you know, as well. It changes your posture, it changes your attitude, it changes the way you feel about yourself. And that, I think, is the magic of fashion in general. That's what its purpose is at the end of the day. You grew up in Georgia mm. during the time of the Soviet Union. Your family mm. escaped at some point. That wasn't a place where conversations around gender identity homosexuality, you know, does some of this motivation to bring this into kind of mainstream fashion and culture come from having grown up in an environment like that? I think so. I think there is a direct link for me personally with the culture in which I grew and uh, don't ask, don't tell. I mean, I mean, officially there are no gays in Georgia, you know. So obviously it's, it was a taboo subject for for me when I was growing up there and it unfortunately it still is for many people there and um, you know I like to raise questions through my work because otherwise it's just a decorative fashion that I'm not really into so this is one of the very important issues you know of like gender diversity and uh, homosexuality I've been bullied for that and I've I mean I've been more terrorized by homophobia than the actual civil war. So I feel like it is in me. It's something that I, I still, I have to, it's almost like a therapy in a way yeah. to do that. Not only for myself, but I think, unfortunately we still live in the world where this is needed, where these issues are very relevant. And since fashion is the mirror of our times, I think it is kind of part of my job almost. Yeah. You and I actually had a long conversation about the fashion years system ago. years ago yeah. when you were on our cover. I remember, yeah. And, Very you know, it said something like Vet Mom is going to <laughs> disrupt the fashion system. Did you say that? Or? Yeah. Ah, okay. You, were, you, and, you and Goran were changing the way you were presenting your collections. You were changing, yeah. you know, the timing Wearing of your the shows. Agony. Yeah. 
And we're still having that conversation so many years later. And now, you know, we've all paused for 16 months. The system kind of got interrupted. But it feels like it's snapping back. You know, we're Into? snapping back to the way it was. And I just wonder, you know, this collection you're doing now, you say you're only going to do one couture collection a year, but you do the ready-to-wear ready to collections, plus, you know, probably pre-collections. What's your, what's your take on how this fashion system should work and what we should learn from the last 16 months of pause? I'm not sure what we can learn or this, the, 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 the industry can learn. I think that it's, fashion is an ever-changing industry. I mean, five years ago, there were very similar issues that have to be addressed today, obviously. But I think we moved forward with certain issues already. It evolved, like, you know, sustainability, like raising questions about consumption in general. I mean, the thing is, it's kind of ironic because I'm in the middle of the system that encourages the consumption. But what I'm trying to do, bringing couture to it, is actually start a conversation about thinking twice about consumption. I think, you know, couture for me has something very modern in its concept because we only produce what somebody orders. So this is like the most sustainable way of consuming clothes or, you know, of, of fashion in its essence. But obviously the industry cannot live on that. So because of, the, you know, it's just a huge gigantic um, mechanism that needs to fit itself. But I think it is also about finding that balance. You know, this pandemic made me question a lot of things about creative sustainability. We always talk about fabrics and textile and yarns and production, but there is all these other things that we need to kind of address, consumption and the process also, you know, making all these products, as you said, pre-collection, main collection. I mean, I'm going to do two massive collections a year, basically, and then I split them into pre -collection. Yeah, I don't really work with notions of like season I don't even know what season like it's look it's raining middle of July I mean so that's not relevant anymore but then it's still a lot of product it's still a lot of ideas that get tested and developed and so often also end up in a garbage bin you know and that I feel is also a bit frustrating often and before pandemic I never thought about it I was like a hamster in a wheel just making stuff and making it and making it. and then I started to reduce, I started to edit a lot, a lot, a lot. And I so think I helped. In terms of the way you approach the size of your collection. Size of the collection, yeah. uh, definitely size of the collection and um, number of attributions we do per styles, you know, also saying, do we really need three trench coats in one collection or is it enough to have one? Or maybe we can just keep the one from last season because it's kind of timeless, you know? Like reducing, I think, you know, um, Actually, Cristobal Balenciaga said, elegance is elimination. So what, I mean, I didn't do it to be elegant in my, my approach, but I, I really followed that kind of um, vibe of eliminating things, you know, making less, but having more time to focus on them. Because I realized how much I was running. You know, when you stay at home and you work on your screen, you actually cannot do as many fittings as you do when you're in real life, sitting there with scissors and cutting and pinning. It's a lot of verbal communication that actually I didn't know before. So difficulty doing that, it was very challenging for me to do that, you know, to, because I fit every product, you know, usually. But then I had to do it on my laptop. And I realized I just cannot keep up with that pace. I cannot do as much if I want to do it good. So that's when I started to reduce. And then the question, question came, like, do we actually need all of that? Or is it enough to have like just 10% of that? 
I would say so, yeah, and that's, I'm pretty much on that. Cutting back by 90%. Yeah. I didn't cut back by 90%, yes, because I think some people will have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like, um, I feel like there is something quite attractive in that, you know, and also I know that I can assure a better quality of product by doing less, that's for sure. But the irony is you need to sell mountains of sneakers in order to be able to sustain both this mm. couture collection and the business, right? There's a, like, it's such an interesting tension, right? Because the industry functions mm. on producing more, you know, Balenciaga is part of a big group, mm. Caring, mm. that's a publicly traded company. Sure and they need to show growth. And my, my big question is this kind of how, how are we gonna resolve, you, you called it balance. I think it is balance. I think it's balance and it's also, we need to involve more the customer, I think, in this conversation to not necessarily, it's not education, it's not like we're offering you to buy less, but then we're you know, throwing all this product and your decision is made by those people at the end of the day. But understanding what people want from fashion, I think that's the good starting point because they don't want all of that stuff that is being produced. They don't need it, they don't want it, and to be honest, they don't care about it. So, but we work on that and we pollute and we, not only our planet, but also our creative minds and you know, our teams, like workloads, etc. So. Fashion has become too busy to notice that, you know, the industry. And I feel that pandemic gave that somehow possibility to take a step back and to kind of look at it from objectively and to, to understand you don't need all of that. Even people who before pandemic would tell me, no, but that's how it is. You need drop here, drop there, you know, like uh, color, special color here, special color there. So people get animated, but actually that's not the point. That's not what drives them to buy it. If the product is shit, they're not, and if the communication around it, there's a lot of storytelling also with it. If that doesn't work, fashion creates desire, right? And you can only do that through making a good product. That's what I believe. And I think people getting more and more informed and cult cultivated about, about that themselves. So they just won't go and spend money on something that doesn't. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. 
the point is when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. What role do you think fashion plays now in culture? You, know, you came through kind of a really, you know, if there was a, like a formal education for fashion, the Antwerp Academy, Margiela, Mark Jacobs at Vuitton, Nicolas Gasquier oh, at Vuitton. Yeah. Those are all the best teachers, you I know? I had like the, the whole thing. And so, then the archives of Cristobal Balenciaga. I mean, it's insane, cool. right? But like, oh, how do you think the role of fashion has changed in our culture and our society over these last 20 or 30 years since things started opening up in this industry? I think it has a few different roles, fashion, today, as opposed to how it used to be, let's say, in the 50s or something. It was really, back then, for me, fashion was to show your status, your belonging to a certain class, you know, and it was very visual and decorative in a way. I think it was much easier to do fashion back then, to be honest. When I look at things, even when I look at the 80s and 90s, I ended up rolling my eyes quite a lot because I felt like, oh my God, I mean, I feel like I'm living in the most difficult era to do fashion. But now it has all these different purposes. It's a mirror of our society, of our culture. We need to talk about the issues, the problems through it. You know, we need to address those things through, because what we wear, it's kind of, it's like a packaging for our identity. You know, we either belong to this or to that. It's, uh, it puts us in a place, which is very similar to how it used to be back then. But back then everybody wanted to look like an elite aristocrat, you know. There was all this nobility behind it. Today it's more, are you cool or are you not cool? Or are you, you know, did you get it or you didn't get it? So it's a very, very much more limited way of kind of, you know, but it's still boxes. And fashion does create that packaging that puts the customer and consumer in those boxes that actually, it's like a tool of 
communicating your identity to the outside world. But I think it's a very important and super powerful tool as well, because people, people, I mean, I have these experiences every single day, being judged by how I dress, you know, like being thrown out of places or being not let in into the bank to get cash because they think I'm a homeless person. It's what people see and the idea they project on that and that's, they build some kind of an idea about who you are, you know, whether you're wearing classic shoes or a sneaker, whether the sneakers are clean or dirty. I mean, they're so, it's so deep, it can go really far, I think, in what, what fashion does to, um, to society. Um, at the same time, I feel like more than ever, fashion is kind of a libido. I don't know, I call it libido. It's like, it's very Freudian in a way, the way I see it, but you know, it, it is there to give us a certain type of confidence and it is there to make us feel or be attractive to other people to basically ultimately end up being late. I mean, that's also kind of, it's the reality of it. We don't dress to be like respected. We, don't, we, don't, we do dress in a certain way because we feel better that way and because we think that other people will like us. So there is a bit of Freud in there, which I think is more than ever actually present because especially in younger generation and with social media and all that, I feel like, you know, it's basically the way to advertise yourself in a way to whoever you want to appeal to. There's also the notion of fashion as becoming a platform for activism mm -hmm. around issues in the world. You know, we've talked about sustainability, we talked about the gender binary. Mm. Um, and these are things that you've incorporated into your collections and into your kind of interpretation of this brand. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done in that regard and why, why, fashion, can, why fashion even deserves to be a platform like this? Because 20, 30 years ago, it really no, wasn't. It was just about clothes. Yeah, yeah, I think the internet did it also, that fashion became this kind of platform, you know? The massive exposure, brands are so big and they have such a big following, let's say. Not following on social media only, but the customer base, the, the audience of every brand is so massive. Every brand, I mean, I'm talking about now big brands that actually have to be involved in the social and cultural conversation, um, that Ignoring that or not using that as a platform would be uh, not only pity, but would be kind of very irresponsible, I think, for the, for the, well, for the luxury industry in general, because, okay, we want to sell the mountains of product, right? Because it is about corporation, it is about business, it's about making money at the end of the day. We don't do it just, I mean, I do it because I love doing it, but I don't think it's still, you know, I still get paid to do that. So I guess we, we cannot ignore that part. But we need to give back. And give back is not giving money back or it's not giving, it's using that platform to, you know, so that people can benefit outside of that cor corporate fashion, can benefit from that plot platform as a, as a stage almost. Because fashion is, I mean, now fashion is like an entertainment, it's like movie industry, and, you know, it's, it's part of that. Well, yeah, I mean, and the way I think about it is like when I was growing up, the big cu cultural pillars were like music and film. But fashion has joined that. And yeah, and even sport. I, sometimes yeah. I feel like sometimes it even is stronger. Think, yeah, it's, it's, it's become like a, it's become, it's a, it connected to all cultural pillars. Yeah. Like every, you know, technology connects back to fashion. Film and entertainment connect back to fashion. Music connects to fashion. Sports stars are connected to fashion. But it's because also fashion is so much more about identity than all these other fields. Yeah. And people need that. I think more than ever, people need 
either to find or to express some kind of identity through fashion. And I think that's why it is, I feel, like a stronger platform than any other of those music or movies. People like, for example, Vivian, they used also fashion even then as a form of activism rather than as a form of creative field necessarily. Yeah. You know, it was really to, to say things yeah. and to shout about them. Yeah. And today that's something that every brand has to do if they want to be relevant also, because yeah. the audience needs that too. If you're silent about those things, it means you're lying. Yeah. But how do you do that authentically? Because the other thing that's happened is because everybody has to do it. Yeah, Everyone jumps on these bandwagons. You have greenwashing and pinkwashing and so you, know, you know, everyone's talking about these issues. But if you look inside a lot of these organizations... Well, I think, I don't know, they say, like in Russian, they say the fish rots from its head, you know? And somehow in fashion, it's a bit like that. It has to start from the beginning, from where... And I think my role as creative director, I am that head of that fish that either rots or not. So I need to connect to those issues myself. It is a very personal thing. What, what issues are we talking? Do we have to talk about all the issues possible existing? I mean, that's also kind of difficult, you know? We have to choose our battles, I think. But those battles can be only chosen in, 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 your, private, in your personal relation to those issues. So what matters to you? I mean, is it sustainability that even... I think this is one thing that actually unites all. There is no... You have to do that. There is no choice even. I mean, all the conferences and people talk about it and we will do that and we will do this and nothing is being done. Uh, but actually, it's very simple. It's very simple. It has to start if we talk about like textile sustainability. I mean, Balenciaga does a lot of research on that. We have the super department who is very supported by caring. And, you know, we really have, um, how to say, tools and I would say resources to do that also, luckily. Um, at one point before pandemic, the idea I had, I wanted to make the collection that would be kind of, I mean, utopic thinking back then, I thought, fully sustainable on the textile level. What does that mean, though? What does it mean, though? Yeah. Well, I mean, what kind of dyes we're using to, you know, to color the fabrics, uh, how much polyester is in there, is it the recyclable? All of those elements that actually do make it less impactful. I cannot say that you can erase it just by saying that it's sustainable. There is like the whole book like that that needs to be, you know, considered in making a sustainable textile that is eco-friendly, that is going to rot for 2,000 or, you know, 20,000 20, years. So that kind of sustain... I'm talking about textile and fabrication also because we're using a lot of glue, bonding things. Now we're actually, finally, we're managing to make a fully sustainable shoe. A sneaker, yeah, yeah. What I mean, does, the speed so that's really example. interesting. So, like, what does a fully sustainable shoe? Well, all the the problem is with shoes that there is glue. There are materials that are not recyclable or biodegradable in a shoe making, especially when it comes to sports shoe. And since we do make a lot of sports shoe, and that's why our focus was on speed because it's kind of a massive product. And we, it was quite a process. I think almost one and a half, two years to get to the point where now we can make that upper and everything will basically disappear without laying there in the field for centuries. And that is, I have to say, that we sometimes overestimate technology. I think we are not there yet with many things. But if you make an effort, you can get there, on, especially on product that is so massive. A trench coat that we only sell five pieces of has a different impact than 5,000 pieces of sneakers. You know what I mean? And at one point, I actually asked my textile team, don't show me anything that doesn't work within this 
rule book of what we need to consider to be a, you know, a truly sustainable brand without just talking about it. Mm -hmm. And they did, they only show, and I thought that's a bit tricky because I might, you know, you might end up with this eco looking kind of fabrics in this kind of palette of greens and, you know, onion skin kind of dyed. But actually, it was not like that. I think that the industry has evolved in the last five years a lot and the selection of textiles that I see at the beginning of every season when I choose my fabrics, it's actually they never show me anything that is not within that rule book of sustainability. So I don't even have a choice. I choose from that and I'm pretty happy with that. I'm, I don't feel any kind of aesthetic frustration, you know, from the choices I make from what I'm given. So that's also the thing that if everybody would do that, you know, the whole industry, it's really like a domino. It's, it's very connected. The manufacturers, they would have no interest in developing, you know, the polyester that doesn't, that doesn't biodegrade if nobody needs it anymore. You know, it feeds on itself. Yeah. So for me, my role in that is really to try to go as far as I can in making the right choices. Yeah. yeah. You talked about caring being a place and a group that provides expertise in sustainability. And we also talked about the fish rotting from the head. And Mr. Pino has put sustainability right at the mm. kind of same level as profit. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how being part of caring, where this sustainability priority is so high, how that helps you? Well, it helps because it's in a kind of, it's in a mindset of the whole group and obviously for me even before I started the Balenciaga it was very clear that this is on the top of the list. This is something that you have, it has to be embedded in your um, professional approach to what you're going to do and uh, luckily so because it goes hand in hand with my personal view on, 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 on the world and on life and um, what is good about it is that you feel that support in whatever kind of research that we need to do or you know discussing how can the product sometimes it's more expensive to be sustainable too you know what do you do with that it's really like this is kind of business decisions also to be made it's not only choosing the fabric or it's not only not using plastic bottles in the whole company those kind of decisions they were just like you know natural like this is how Balenciaga functions there is no other way and I have to say that my teams even like I'm talking about design team for example they love it. This is what I have a lot of young people, obviously, for who those issues are very important and they're very involved. People really get involved when they see that it comes from the top. It's not just something we have to kind of do to tell it in the interview. It's a lifestyle. It's the way Balenciaga lives every single day when they go to work. This is how it is. And they, they love doing that. All of my designers on the team requested, actually, if they could work on uh, recycling programs. We do that quite a lot already in ready-to-wear, like using dead stock, not only of fabrics, but dead stock of our own clothes or even buying, you know, and recycling vintage and stuff like that. They all want to do that because it's in their way of thinking, you know, and it also pushes the creativity somewhere else, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to do that. And the fact that caring is actually, has put it as a, not in the rule book, but this is the priority of what the group actually uh, focuses on in every kind of conversation I ever had with them um, that's just an inevitable truth and yeah it's a mindset that I think being a mindset that's what helps for it to be authentic as well yeah. okay it's the day before your show yeah 
the 50th couture show of Balenciaga, your first couture show. Mm. We're sitting in the salon to, where it's going to happen tomorrow. Tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling um, the anxiety I haven't felt for, for since March 2020, just before the pandemic. And that I thought I missed quite a lot, that anxiety, you know, doing all these digital projects for one year and kind of trying to discover new territories. I felt really frustrated that I couldn't connect to that moment as a designer, like my work being released to the public. And I felt really somehow bored. The last collection came out, I was having like muesli at home watching it, you know, and I thought that's really strange. Like I cannot, I have a jet lag of collections, like it came out when I finished it two years or two, two months before. And now the couture has been in making for over one year almost. Um, and it's the first live event that we're gonna have, even if the, the audience is going to be quite restricted and small. Um, but I start to feel that, that feeling in my stomach that is very, very familiar to me. And that I think I love actually. I don't know, it's kind of masochistic thing, I guess, when you're a designer, you need that feeling to to boost your adrenaline as a designer. And I do feel that, especially this time, because it's couture. Not only because it's the 50th couture for Balenciaga, because I didn't have to do it, you know yeah. what I mean? No, there was no like obligation for me to do it. It's not even, you know, it's not part of my contract <laughs> to do that or anything like that. But it's symbolic, I don't know. It's symbolic for my showing respect to the legacy that I, I'm lucky enough to be in the middle of because I consider myself lucky being in this house and having all that heritage, you know, in the past and being able to go back to it and, you know, try to understand the mindset of how Cristobal Balenciaga worked. It's like my like ultimate MA in fashion, I would say, you know. It's but, the latest step in your education. Yeah, education. yeah, well, I think that's what it is when you're a designer. You kind of, keep, you have to keep evolving and discovering new areas that you don't know. And that's what happened to me through Couture. I discovered new facets of my creativity. I designed hats and embroideries and colors and ballroom dresses and all of those things that actually people don't know about me. No. You know, a lot of people kind of, I'm in this box of a street where hoodie sneaker guy and um, I have been suffering from that for a while I think because I felt injustice in people thinking that about me because that's how not how I ever felt even though I did introduce those pe those kind of products into the vocabulary of today's luxury, luxury fashion I, or I've been part of that conversation for sure for the last six seven years but that's really the kind of tip of the iceberg in a way you know there is much more in me as a, as, a, as a designer, and I felt that I've never expressed that enough, and couture is the ultimate platform for that. So I'm anxious because, because I think I like being anxious, <laughs> anxious in this kind of moments, but at the same time, I'm very, I feel very fulfilled by having done that. I don't know how to explain that. It's not, it's not an accomplishment, it has been a lot of work, but it's gonna show me as a designer in the light that I think people might, some people might not know um, I have. Last question. Yes? If there's one thing that you think our industry should change after this period, you know, maybe we'll go back to big shows, maybe we'll still produce mountains of sneakers, I don't know. What, what, should, what should the industry do differently going forward? I think it just, just try to shut up. What do you mean? Because there is a lot of talk about 
there's a lot of white noise in fashion today. A lot of blah, 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 blah. And a lot of bad product. A lot of, if I can say that, bad taste. And I think it needs to just shut up and look at itself and maybe realize that it doesn't need all of that to actually be good and to, and to be relevant and to, and to sell even. Because I think the more it talks about things, the more of this, the digital mayhem through which we're living with all the social media and posts and all of those things, I mean, influencers or whatever, it just, it's a very slippery slope for fashion. And I think if it doesn't realize it in time, it's like somebody being an alcoholic and not accepting it. You need to accept that at one point and to face your fears and to just basically do some, deal with that. And I think that's maybe a bit rude, what I'm saying in a way, but it's exactly how I feel about it. And for me, maybe doing couture is my way of trying to shut up, you know? And it's my way of taking, taking a minute of silence almost to reflect. This is why the show tomorrow will be in a full silence. Because no I, there will be no music. It's the first time I never showed my work in silence because wow. I find it very intimidating. And I think that's exactly what I want to do with this couture. That minute of silence, in a way symbolically, as a kind of homage to the men who made this house, you know, how they do that. But on the other hand, it's very symbolic from what I just told you about fashion as an industry. All the white noise, things that don't matter. Demna, thank you so much. Thank you, Imran. What we wear says a lot about who we are. Yet fashion is also a $2.5 trillion global industry that touches everyone on Earth. I'm Imran Ahmed. I first started trying to make sense of the business of fashion 15 years ago, as it was being transformed by technology, globalization, and shifting consumer values. Now I'm on a journey to see how fashion is recalibrating after the pandemic to balance profit with purpose. This is the Business of Fashion Show. Join me to discover how fashion shapes business, culture, and identity, and to meet the people forging fashion's future. To watch the full first episode of the BOF Show, including conversations with Demna Gvasalia, Marine Serre, and Pierre-Alexandre Pelle, is available to stream now on Bloomberg Quick Take and the Business of Fashion, with new episodes released every two weeks. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.